You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Anne Clark is a spoken word artist, a poet and pioneer in the spoken word music field. Ever since her first album, The Sitting Room, consisting of her poetry read in a world she creates with her music, she's been the doyen of the techno and new wave scene. Her career over the past 40 years is defined by her desire to experiment and push the genre further. Her poems, whether inspired from her own life and experience and the people she comes into contact with, or from works that have particularly moved her, have an innate beauty and often mirror our own experience of life. And those, of course, spoken within the world she creates with the music, become somehow much more potent and poignant. Well, it's lovely to see you, Anne Clark. It really is. And you, Steve. And I'm going to start with something, and I'm sorry to say this, but I'm going to start with something that sounds a little facile, but it isn't. And I really want to ask you what you have done so far today, because we're at 12 o'clock, just two minutes past 12, and I just wondered what you've done today. Today I have written in my journal and I have walked my pet dogs. All right, okay. The reason I ask that is because you've been through a very difficult period because of having cancer. And I presume by having cancer, you reassess your whole life and you look at your life and you think differently about it. Can you tell me how you now think differently and what does every day mean to you? Wow, yes. I mean, it's been a huge 18 months. I mean, not just for me. Um, I mean, I think for everybody, the whole world, you know, obviously because of the uh, COVID situation, I mean, everybody's lives were were thrown into some kind of disruption, I think. But yeah, I got my diagnosis at exactly the same time as the UK, where I was at the time, went into lockdown. So it was a bit, yeah, it was very frightening and very terrifying. And of course, it's a diagnosis that none of us want, but about 50% of us, if not more, are going to get, you know, at, at, at some some point in our lives. So of course, it was completely devastating and, and exacerbated by the, the COVID situation. But I had such a fantastic doctor and network of doctors and every, I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, that, that lesson, the first time in hospital, that really made me re- reassess everything when you had um the wards you know with maybe up to 30 40 patients all around these different units and and suddenly all the nurses except one being sent off to quarantine just in case because they'd been in contact with with someone with covid and and this tireless way that they worked and how they they really worked it just made me like i think many people you know just realize who the real heroes and the real important people are um, but many people who yeah. go through something like cancer and come out the other side, they it's the reassessment that they have is the value of life to realizing Absolutely. that you only have one life yeah. and yeah. you have to make something with it. So I just wondered, were there specific changes that you have adopted because of that? Or after this amount of time, I presume you have an all clear now in a certain sense. Well, I don't know if there can be. There's really. never an all clear, you know. No. I mean, there's never an all clear. The, the doctors have told me, you know, it could come back tomorrow. And at the moment, 
I've got the all clear. So yes, it's taught me very much to live. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's taught me to live every moment at the t- of a, at the time, you know, and not take any moment for granted or any day for granted because I just don't know. Again, like none of us know. But when you've had that diagnosis, it's put really in front of your face. Um, I just don't know if something will happen again. So I really, I mean, I've always tried to grab every moment and live every moment as fully as possible, but but even more now. So I think I must get on some people more <laughs> with my over-enthusiasm, you know, for, for the tiniest things and the, the smallest things, because as the saying goes, you know, take care of the, the small things, because one day they'll be the biggest things in your life, you know. And yeah, I've tried. I've tried to be more patient, which I find difficult, and I've tried to be kinder, which, with the current political and world situation, isn't always easy. But yeah, you know, whether you've got cancer or not, you're just a human, and and you have your reactions. And and but yeah, I try to take a breath and then respond, you know, to things. So. Yeah, I'm 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 a writer today. I'm a screenwriter, and um, one of the things about when you write, obviously, as you know, is searching for your voice. And searching for your voice, you're always looking event at events in your past that that, that formed you and had an impact on you. And um, one of my earliest memories is, and when I read about uh, your childhood, but one of my earliest memories is one of extreme anger between my mother and father when man, humankind, shouldn't say that, God, when humankind landed on the moon, um, this moment, the 20th of July, uh, was my mother's birthday. And oh. I rem- all I remember it for is they had this massive fight. And my mother was, my father was a market trader and he used to throw money around the room. And it was a bit like East Germany. There would be pockmarks all over the walls. <laughs> like the aftermath of, of the war, still sort of scars everywhere. And um, and he was he could be, he wasn't very often, but he could be a very violent person. And a lot of my memories are formed from the relationship I had uh, with my father. And because you experienced a lot of anger in your childhood, I wondered, first of all, how did that take place? What were those events? And how did that make you feel? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it, it went back as far back as I can remember to a tiny child, you know, to being a tiny child. So, of course, you think it's normal. It wasn't till I was older and went to school and, and saw how other families behaved with each other that actually it wasn't normal at all. So that was that was quite shocking. And... The thing is that anger really wasn't wasn't processed through my parents with each other. It, they they passed it through the child through their children, and would aim it at my brother and I. So it was very violent and very aggressive and and very changing. I mean, my mum was so volatile. You know, she would be the most funny, brilliant, charming charismatic woman one second and then this monster the next second that would would just throw yeah throw you down throw me down the stairs fight with my brother till the police the neighbors called the police and and it was just horrendous I mean and and completely destabilizing but maybe like you that's how I ended up writing and found such refuge in in uh, music and books and film and anything 
you know, fortunately I had my little bedroom and that was my haven whenever it could be. And yeah, there I discovered the whole world of, of music, books, writing, yeah, another world altogether, which, which was wonderful, but it was quite a hard way to, <laughs> to discover it. Did you feel very isolated at that time? Because that's the feeling, I mean, I used to sit in my room as well. And uh, my outlet was more music than than yeah. anything else that I would really dive into. I mean, you know, things like Bowie and so on and so forth. But I mean, it was those, it was that that was really my my outlet in, in that area. Yeah. Um, but how how did that make you feel? Did it make you feel isolated as a as a well yeah, person? I bet. I mean it's quite funny in a way now looking back on it, because going to school, you know, being 11, 12, 13, going through puberty, I think. And of course, along with all the other girls at school, I loved David Cassidy and I loved um, you know, all the boy but but I my my real heartthrob was Brian Eno and all these weird people, David Bowie, who of course came to be much more acceptable but all these kind of like weird weird musicians and you know all the kids at school would be listening to I don't know what would it have been then the Osmonds and the Carpenters and and I would come along with um you know Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets um album or um um Greenslade or or just totally obscure things so of course yeah that was that always made me a bit feel a bit isolated and yeah the situation did I mean one thing you just mentioned there was that you didn't realize what a um a normal relationship was because your parents didn't have a normal relationship I remember seeing the parents of friends of mine sitting on a sofa holding hands and asking this guy why are they doing that (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah it's incredible I mean yeah, you can analyse it till till the cows come home, really. I mean, for me, yes, it was just this amazement of tenderness, that tenderness could actually exist between people. It was like, wow, you know, and you could see people like, well, you know, what, what's what's the problem? It was just like, wow, people can be tender. And, and I mean, I, you know, I'm painting this picture, but there were times, you know, my, my father was destroyed by it, and I'm sure my mother was destroyed by whatever caused this, violence within them this emotional violence you know but um I just can't I just can't say oh it's all their fault and you know they were terrible parents because to be honest although we might have had friends who have got nice parents there's an awful lot of screwed up parents out there and I also came to realize that yeah actually my parents may have been very extreme but there are many dysfunctional families out there I think so. also we don't we only know things like this because of people like you who are honest or people you know like myself who are willing to talk about um those points and um I remember that my father was a very absent father even though he was there emotionally um yeah. and that definitely had a massive impact on my life yeah. in the sense of I think I looked for love in other areas in my life because of his absence emotionally. And um, I know that from my mother, she told me this uh, amazing story once where uh, he didn't want a third child and I was the third son and he never had anything to do with me when I was young. And that of course had a massive impact. And I just wondered also because an absent parent 
does cause you to search for things outside yourself to replace that what you're what you don't get from your parents so yeah, I'm, I'm I wondered sure whether you know your whole life it. has been based on this search for love yes. that could be from an audience you know yes I mean I think many performers are desperately seek attention seekers obviously I mean anyone who stands up in front of hundreds or thousands of people saying look at me listen to me they're obviously searching for something but again at the time yeah my, my father was the same he would leave the house at seven in the morning and wouldn't come home till 10 o'clock at night and then at the weekends he'd be in his shed or his garage the whole time and it was just normal it was just oh yeah dad's not not there you know that's what he does and of course all the time it's having this influence in you but I don't think I became aware of it until I was older you know and yes then yeah there's this constant searching this this looking for normality in a way you know, yeah, I mean, I just think, oh, when you're when you're a musician or you're everything's like about ex excess and outrage and extreme, but this search for just normality, a normal evening meal together at the table for me is paradise. You know, with people just chatting and drinking a glass of wine, or, or it's just like wow, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the other thing is I, I ended up being on, on MTV and I think my search for love was to be on TV to get people to love me who I didn't know, but you don't get love. That isn't love. Um, so being on a stage isn't real love. It's the adoration of Sorry. an audience or their, you know, their love of your music or whatever, but it's not actual real love. So did you yeah. also go through that point where you realised that what you were searching for actually wasn't the real thing and then you had to change away from that again not really so because one very important thing for me is that in my career and, and, and me as a person for me I'm very certain about it's the material it's my material that people get something from for whatever reason I don't know why I don't know why they like it I mean nobody was more shocked than me to be invited to go to Germany and America and and wherever to do my stuff because yeah I was just this wakey punky teenager and doing my stuff and so for me it's always been about the material and if I'm not interested really what people think of me or, or what they want to know because I'm not the I'm not the important element you know, I'm I'm not glamorous. I'm not this creative pop star. I don't have this, fortunately, I don't have this image that I have to live up to, you know, which is, I think, must be awful for, for real, um, as we live in now, celebrity icons, you know, that must be awful. But then, in a way, I guess they, they like the superficiality of that also, perhaps. I, I can't say. So always it's the material and not, not, them loving me yeah I, I think there was an element of actually being wanted of being felt that I could contribute something to other people you're listening to pop the history makers with me Steve Blame I mean For there's sure. a universality in the themes that you're that you write about so there that's part of the connection the other connection is of course you build this world with the music that we dive into and so it's almost like we experience that alone but together do you yeah. know what I mean I think yeah. that's 
my experience of 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 your music there's some sort of universality but there's also some element of me being on my own within your world that is also my world yeah know? i mean that that's the wonderful beautiful thing about for want of a better word art isn't it you know whether it's a book or a painting or a, a film or a piece of music and that's the other thing that once i've done it once i've written it or it's not my i give it out there and people can interpret it however they want you know when people say oh well what is this text about or what is that it doesn't really matter what it's about to me it matters what it's about to to them you know now, there you are, as, as a very young person in your room listening to Brian Eno. Um, but at that time, you were also going to school. And although I live in Germany, I was brought up in Britain, and I went through the British school system. And my school system was a, an arts and sciences-based school, all about passing, you know, your O-levels, your A-levels, the yeah. plus, whatever. And um, it was never about creativity in, in right. any form at all. And um, I always had a sort of hatred of the school system in Britain. And I, and I read in an interview that you also have that sort of, I don't know, hatred such a big word, but you also have that sort of feeling about the school system in Britain. What was your experience in, at school and why did you feel that way? Well, it's interesting, really. Again, it was quite bizarre, my schooling, because I went to the regular primary school up to and junior school and then at 11 we were all shipped off to the secondary schools and for some reason I ended up in this it was at the time when grammar schools uh, comprehensive schools merged with gra uh, com uh, grammar schools and comprehensive had merged so I ended up in this very quite high level um, school in old Coulston in Surrey so there was this immediate class thing to begin with because most of the other kids there were either doctors' kids or lawyers' kids or – and my dad was a paramedic, you know, so it wasn't quite the same league <laughs> as, um, as that. And also there was this real discrepancy between my ability with, for example, mathematics and sciences and art and literature. So I was like in the highest class for, for English and literature – um, the lowest class for for mathematics and science because it was just something that, yeah, I didn't get. And it caused me a lot of confusion and my teachers a lot of confusion, I think. And, yeah, maybe it's just, you know, I need a, a very late autism diagnosis or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. But there were only very certain things that I could really focus on and really be interested in, to be honest, you know physics and science and they didn't really mathematics I just wasn't interested in them you know you said you know about retreating to your room and listening to Brian Eno that what in a, on, a, on a positive sense what did your parents open you up to creatively or was there any creativity in the household well that's what's so bizarre is that you know at these very small periods my mum would introduce me to classical music she'd play she'd have Mozart and Chopin playing and she would take me with a friend of hers to um, the festival Royal Festival Hall to hear a piano recital of Chopin or, or, or something and it was like whoa where, where did that come from you know so she did yeah something inside her really could appreciate and and love this very 
what's the word, sensitive and, and um, creative essence in the world. But yeah, the rest of the time, it was just something else. But yeah, my father, I didn't see enough. So, I mean, he was, a, I think he was a very smart guy. I mean, he, he'd been born out in India, in the Himalayas out there, and he could speak every dialect of Indian. You know, like when, if we go to an Indian restaurant or something, this tall blonde guy would start speaking Urdu or Punjabi or to the, all the waiters and there'd be a, like a big party in the restaurant because of, of that. And I know that um, I think during the wartime, he was very much an active, you know, soldier in, in the war. And yeah, he traveled the whole world during from India to eventually the UK. But um, he never lived up lived to his potential, and that made me very sad to see him get old and be, as I say, completely destroyed by this very strong, very powerful, but very negative woman. Ultimately, which was was my mom. You know? When were you first exposed to poetry? Oh, I don't know. Again, at, at school, of course, we'd have to read poetry, but the first poem that really made me sit up and read it thoroughly was a Charles Causley poem when I was about, how old would I have been? I don't know, 12, 13, maybe? Song of the Dying Gunner, it's called. And yeah, it just starts with this line, oh, mother, my mouth is full of stars as cartridges in their tray, you know? And it was just like, what is that? What kind of language is that? You know, it was just like all these images and um, yeah, visualizations that, that came from the language. So yeah, I guess 10, 11, 12, something like that. And that was a trigger for you to read more poetry. Yeah. And so where yeah. did you, I mean, when you're at school and you're, yeah. I don't know, possibly then the only person <laughs> who, <laughs> Has that I mean I remember in, in, in you know in English classes that poetry was sort of a throwaway. It was like something you won't here's something you won't be interested in. And yeah. they, they'd already told us we wouldn't be interested in it. So that, we weren't interested yeah. in it at the start, which was a real shame because it took yes. years before I could come back and, and appreciate, you know, a, a yeah. great part of our culture. Yeah. That's it. The way it was taught or is taught even now, perhaps. I mean, who the hell wants to sit and listen to um you know, Longfellow being read read by, you know, a 60-year-old teacher who's reading it like he's reading the telephone directory or, or something, you know, it's just, yeah, but I think pro probably now it's much more interesting for kids, especially with all the um, rap and hip-hop influences and, and stuff that's been going on for years now. I think, yeah, maybe kids, I don't know, I don't know. It's up to every individual uh, to to see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. The Outsider has always played a, uh, a great role in popular culture. You know, um, I mean, you've, you know, because I was a Bowie fan, the only, you've got to listen to a Bowie album or the names of, you know, the alien, the outsider. Yeah. It's all about being some somewhere else and somewhere yeah. out there. Um, do you feel that that has played a big role in your journey as an artist? Well, I think you recognise it. Huh? I think fellow outsiders, whatever, recognise each other, whether that's possibly meeting in a, in a bar or, or um, reading a book or listening to a piece of music. You know, I think, yeah, it has to 
to have an influence. I, again, I, I don't think it's something I try not to dwell on too much because it can make you feel very lonely and very isolated in a way. Um, yeah, it's not something to, to dwell on if, if at all possible. And, and of course, there are so many, many very isolated and lonely people out there who don't have any means of expression or um, ways of connecting, you know. Was that, that the experience that you had when you when you worked at the Cane Hill Psychiatric Hospital? Was that where that moment came, where you saw these people who were really on the edge of society, I presume, um, and uh, and also, you know, the the, the, the the track Cane Hill really expresses and puts you in that world, um, and it is quite tough and quite moving and painful, I think. Um, and so I just wondered, you experienced it when you were working there and you went back because of your documentary. And I just wondered if you can talk about those two experiences and how, how it had changed over the years in terms of your view of it. Yeah. I mean, if there's one glorious part of my education and one thing I really cherish, it was the fact that at this secondary school out in Old Causden, which is where the what they were called then lunatic asylums were, Cane Hill was on the suburbs of London, this old Victorian building. And part of our social studies class was every few weeks was to, to, to go there as a class and assist in, in, in the hospital. I mean, I can't imagine that they would even consider it now, even allow it now, you know, I don't know, with all the regulations and things, but we would go there, maybe 10 or 11 of us, and we would just sit with with some of these people and talk with them and, and the initiative, whoever the teacher was or the, the part of the school was that initiated that, they deserve, I don't know what, because for me, that was the biggest education of my life to just go there and see, see these people, see a man who was, was then in his late seventies, who'd been there as a young boy because he stole a loaf of bread because his, his family was so poor or another woman completely institutionalized in her 80s because she got pregnant when she was 15 or 16 or something and just just put there um and yet it, to see this this fragility and this vulnerability of people and to have this ability to communicate with people which i didn't have at home and to just listen and talk to them and and them just being so happy just to be able to talk with someone and sit with someone and read a book with someone or have a bite to eat with them, you know, if you felt, but yeah, of course, <laughs> then the other extreme was in the hospital. They had very, very dangerous people in there, very psychotic and people that, yeah, you know, it wasn't too, which we shouldn't have even been around as kids <laughs> really, but sometimes we did see that. And um, yeah, for me, it opened up a whole new world of, of understanding people or wanting to know about people. Mm -hmm. Um, now, of course, Cane Hill is luxury apartment blocks. I mean, at the time it used to be, it was wonderful. I mean, they had a farm, they had their own farm where they would work and yeah, it, it was the most beautiful place. But of course, along with the, with the beauty, when I did go and work there for a while after school, there was incredible cruelty too from some of the staff. I mean, really wicked behavior. So that opened up another view of it and yeah a lot. then in the 80s the care in the community 
initiative came, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. And they were all closed down. I don't know what happened to all the, the patients. But um, yeah, when I went there with Klaus to make the, the video, they cut down every tree, ripped up every beautiful thing. And, and they were now selling luxury apartments there. I think the energy and the ghosts there must be quite interesting for people <laughs> that are living there now. When I talked to John Watts the other week uh, from Fisher's Ed, um, he worked as a clinical psychologist. And although he made a joke about it, he, he, was, he meant it in some truth that he said he used to um, be with psychopaths in the day and be on stage with psychopaths in the evening. And (laughs) I'm not going to ask you if you're a psychopath, but what I'm saying is that fragility that you mentioned and this feeling that you got from those people, I empathise with that as a writer, definitely, that pain um, and that sensitivity. So I just wondered that, is that what you empathise with more than anything else, that you felt part of yourself or saw part of yourself in them as a reflection? It must be. I think it must be, Stephen. I really think so. I think it, it has to be that, um, this fascination, you know, with with these people's stories. Um, yeah, I mean, of course there's this, I mean, when we were kids at the school, coming out of the school, we'd, there'd be these horror stories, you know, and when the winter evenings and autumn evenings drew in and we'd have to walk past the hospital to get the bus home, you know, we'd all have this, you know, there's going to be a mad axe guy waiting there at the bus stop. So you had this crazy imagination, this Edgar Allan Poe scenario going on. So it stimulated all kinds of things, but ultimately the humanity of of the, the stories of the people there. And that's, for me, is the huge thing lacking and the, and the huge things we're distracted by with politics and consumerism when if only they, our sensitivity towards each other could be nurtured. What a different world we would have, you know? Um, you and- mentioned a bit earlier about finding your own people, finding people with similar interests, finding people who think similarly. Um, and uh, you were brought up in Croydon, I think. Yeah. I was brought up in Chelmsford, which is the Ooh. other side of London. Also, <laughs> yeah. you know, both, I'm going to say it, both horrendous yeah. words, cities. Um, yeah. And it took me years to find people who um, I could relate to at all. Where did you find your first clique? Cool. Well, was I it, guess. Was it, you... was it at the theatre, do you think? No, I think it was really with punk rock. I really think when that kicked up, because I mean, whatever, however abysmal Croydon and the surroundings are, it was really a, a cradle of creativity during the punk rock thing, you know? And I mean, this awful industrial wasteland there, but yeah, it produced and the energy that came up from that was was incredible. So it was really in the punk rock movement, I think. But I think more as it developed into a new wave thing with a little bit more creativity and a bit more thinking behind it. You know, there was this very powerful, destructive um, element that just pushed everything away, which, of course, when you're 16 years old or something, you you just fall in love with. (laughs) 
But then as it all settled, whoops, sorry, dropping my computer here, as it all settled back down, um, yeah, these very creative elements came from it. And I found really I, what you call a clique, well, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, that group of people there that I could really relate to. And if you like this interview, please rate and tell your friends about it. Listen to the others and look out for part two of this interview with Anne Clark. See you soon. Thank <music> you.